This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Today is Steve Altier. Yay! Woo-hoo! Let's talk about what we're drinking. So I decided to put coffee with cream and um, Bailey's in my cup this morning, like an adult, because we're recording pretty early. I don't, I don't know if that's a white Russian or a. Anyway, I just made up a drink. I'm just, I'm just saying words now. Anyway, uh, Jam, what are you drinking that's non-alcoholic and boring? I have chamomile tea in a Nightmare Before Christmas mug for the season. So literally the most boring tea you could possibly drink. I, <laughs> it's yeah. good. Okay. <laughs> so great. Okay, boring. Okay, Steve, what are you drinking? I have a Coors Light, you know, traditional, and I also have a little bit of water with me as well. Oh, we're adulting. I see that now. Between the chamomile tea and the water, this is an adulting podcast at this point. <laughs> Hydration is important. Hydration is important. I love that. Okay. So Steve, for the people out there that don't know you, what do you write? Um, I mainly write paranormal mystery suspense. Um, I also have a couple of middle grade chapter books, great for the five to eight year old uh, range. Very cool. Very cool. So when did you begin this writing journey? It was actually something that I wanted to do from back in high school um, as a young adult. But, you know, unfortunately, things kind of change in life. You kind of takes you down a different path. And it never really happened for me until after my children were all gone. Um, so I started writing again. And it's just been that way ever since probably about 13, 14 years now. I've been writing, been published for about eight years. Wow. Oh, very cool. So high school, what what were you writing in high school? I'm sure it was riveting because all of our high school work is the best work that was ever written in the entire world because we really knew what was happening. Well, in high school, it was kind of boring. I wanted to be a journalist. That's what I really wanted to be was someone who would bring the news to people, write for the newspaper, write for television programs, whatever. Um, but I just, I, that was my passion was to be a journalist and it never really happened. Um, I often look back and wonder, you know, if I would have stayed with that, what would have happened? What did you end up doing as an adult to do adulting since you got steered off the journalism path? Well, uh, a couple of unfortunate events happened for me, and then I ended up deciding to change my life. I joined the military. I was in the States Air Force. Very cool. Thank you for your service. Oh, well, thank you. Um, It was something that actually I needed. It was something that helped me get back on the right path. Um, You know, no one likes to admit it, but you know, it was the late 1970s and you know, you get into a little bit of drugs and alcohol and things like that and it can change your whole life forever. So it's time to grow up. And I I used the military for that purpose. That's very cool, very cool. My daughter's in the army. So I think that is awesome. Well, thank thank you for that medic. So. No, no scary times for parents there. Did Jen, were you about to ask something? I was going to ask if while you were there, did you continue to write like 
a little bit or did it just kind of leave your life? Well, I was actually stationed in the Philippine Islands for three years. Um, we worked six, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Oh, wow. It did not leave a lot of time for following a dream. And then after, you know, I got married, had children and devoted myself to them and, you know, making sure I had provided a living for my family and, and spent most of my time trying to take, do what my, you know, take care of my family and my, my wife, my daughter. I have three lovely daughters and one stepdaughter. Very cool. So you write um, paranormal mystery. I love mystery writers because I think that is a whole entire skill set. Not a lot of people have to write truly a good mystery, even if it's for young, younger people or all the way up, because I think there's so much you have to lead with where you don't give it all away, but you eventually get there, but you give enough that people think that they had some part of the who done it, you know, kind of situation. What made you decide to go that genre? <clears throat> well, originally I started writing middle grade chapter books. So the first story I wrote was a story about um, we can't move at Christmas. It's a siblings. They were six and eight year old siblings. They found themselves um, moving at Christmas time. Father comes home and he lets the kids know that, hey, we're going to be moving. Um, cross country at Christmas time. And they're like, no, no, this can't happen. You know, we've already written our letters to Santa Claus. So he's not going to find us. I mean, what are we going to do? That and is awesome. The father reassures his children that, you know, that we have, you know, Santa's got this elite group of elves called the family moving department. And they track kids moving all over the world, all, you know, any time of the year. So don't worry, he's going to find you. Um, it was a great story. Um, I'd written a couple of other books in that, but to answer your question, which was a lot of lead up to that question. No, it's good. Let's go. We can go the whole route all the way around. So I was at a Barnes and Noble doing a book signing for the third book in the Gabby Maddox adventure series. And there was a couple of boys that came up. They were like nine, 10, 11 year old boys. And they're like, this is kid stuff, baby stuff. What do you have for us? And I was like, nothing really. You know, they were on that verge of, you know, teen tweens. And I just like, you know, that's it. I wanted to uh, step my game up, write for a little more of the older of the older kids, you know, the teenagers. And uh, I was talking with a friend of mine one day and they said, how many people can say they grew up in Lizardville? Now, Lizardville is a small Pennsylvania town uh, right in the middle of the state. It's actually called Mill Hall. But there's, a, there's an area called Lizardville Road where I grew up at. Oh, wow. People live there. And that's when I decided to write my childhood stories. Oh, wow. Did you base them off your experiences there? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in before, um, can people see us or? Yeah, they can totally see us. Show things. Okay. I don't have, hold on, just one second. One sec, no worries. When I do a lot of book events, um, I show these, show this to people. So I got this picture. Can you see it well? Oh yeah. This is an old axe factory and an old dam. This picture I got from the Pennsylvania Historical Society, and that was taken in 1904. Wow. Uh, in the late 1950s, the place was destroyed by a flood. 
and there's, there's a house right up here. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the old dam keeper's house. In 1969, my parents bought that. And that's where I grew up. So we grew up, and, and here's a picture of me with my books. I don't know if you can see that. It's along Lizardville Road. Oh, wow. <laughs> up there at the top says Lizardville. Yeah. I'm blocking the camera when I do that, so I don't know if it was. No, it's totally fine. No, no, you can see it. I hope you stole that street sign. Although we don't advocate for crime on this show, but I would have totally stolen that street sign. Not advocating for crime. Not sure who's listening right now. I might get arrested after this. Next time, time I go up there, I'll have to try to do that. Yeah, exactly. But not because we said so, but I still think it's a cool idea. <laughs> the host does not advocate for thievery, but Erica absolutely does. I think that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> that it had to be, how weird was that living in that house though? It was, I mean, as kids, we used to go out along the banks of Big Fishing Creek, which was what it was called. It was the old axe factory. Um, there was remnants of the axe factory there. The foundations were still there. So we used to go out there and just play camp fish. Um, we've had encounters with bears, porcupines, all kind of strange things. But I, I started to write my childhood experiences out and it was missing something. So I, I was talking with a couple of guys that called me one day. They were asking me, you know, so I guess you're writing this story. Are you going to uh, bring in part of the white monkey? And I'm like, the what? The white monkey. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, where are you guys at? And they're like, well, we're down here at the Linger Inn, um, it's, which is a bar up there. And I'm like, oh, no wonder it's 12 o'clock on a Sunday. You guys are at the, already at the tavern. So no wonder you're seeing white monkeys, you know? Um, but no, there's an old legend up there that, that the owner of the Axe Factory in the early 1900s used to go to Africa. He used to bring monkeys back, which he kept as pets, but they still haunt the woods. Oh, wow. Um, and I didn't want to steal that because that's kind of a legend around there. So I had to come up with my own. And I was like, you know what? But the paranormal aspect really intrigued me. So that's what I decided to do. That sounds like so much fun. It's interesting that you base it. Like, I'm, I'm even just sitting here. You keep saying axe factory. And I'm like, they had an entire factory dedicated to axes. Like, you know, we don't think about it now the same way. Obviously, you know, there's car factories or whatever, but to think there was an entire factory dedicated to making axes and that that was so important back then that a whole factory needed to do that. Well, they, they used to cut the wood down. They would float it down the creek. And I, if, I'm sorry if I'm bending over. My cat is nipping at my legs here. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, I'm, of course, the minute I get on a podcast, that's when- we, That's okay. We had a cat knock over a laptop on a podcast. It was like the best thing ever. Whoa, look at that. That's not a, that's not a little person. That is a, that is a hefty cat right there. Okay. Wow. Hi, everybody. <laughs> What's the kitty's name? That is Boots. She, uh, originally we, we got her, not to go on that. Go she, for it. We go everywhere. We drink on the show. It's fine. She uh, actually is in a couple of my stories when the, in the first Christmas story, the, the mom and dad wanted to uh, distract the children from, because they were panicked about Christmas so much, they went out and got her a kitten. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And it was Boots in my stories that I've, that I've adapted in there. So they, uh, she's my writing buddy. 
She's always been here when, with me when I'm writing. And I called her Boots because that's what the guy told us when we got her as a, as a kitten. He said, you know, here's a boy. It's His name's Boots. Um, it was a girl. <laughs> so oh, That person shouldn't be in charge of kitties. Okay. Yes. But, well, that's awesome. Okay. So Axe Factory. We're talking about Axe factory and then um so they used to cut it's okay she can interrupt it's fine as long as she doesn't push her computer over everybody's gonna find it adorable so um <laughs> growing up up there because it looks like that oversaw a lot what what was the first paranormal part you added in was that something like that you felt you kind of experienced and expanded on or legends what did you do there well to answer your question the kids go out on a weekend camping trip and they're out along the banks of Big Fishing Creek. And there's these oversized crows that constantly are following them, haunting them, swooping down on them, trying to distract them from what they're doing. And they're like, what is up with these? I've never seen crows this size before. So the oldest boy, sorry, she's trying No worries. To, you know, um, she, the oldest boy, he starts to gather the kids around the campfire in the evening and he tells them the legends of the Axe Factory murders and that wakes up the spirit world. Oh. So crazy things start to happen after that. You know, Jimmy wakes up in the middle of the night. He goes out to hide behind a tree for a minute and go to the relieve himself. And uh, all of a sudden there's a, a beautiful woman and he's like, ah, who are you? Um, this is Annabelle. And He's like, I've, I've got to be dreaming. I've, I've just got to be dreaming. Like, this, this can't be real. And uh, I just started adding more paranormal elements to the story. It ended up becoming uh, a two book series. I did not go with a third. There was such a great response on Goodreads to the story um, and a lot of questions about it that I had to come back with a second story. But together they've won five literary awards and twice it appeared in national magazine, Story Monsters Inc. So I was really pleased with with the results of that and you didn't want to do a third fourth fifth sixth tenth like how do you not want to get that kind of a feel though you know what i have more paranormal stories let me write about haunted bears they <laughs> actually have a spinoff story so oh. when when i was writing um the second book lizardville jimmy's curse um I had the kids are at the library. They're trying to do their research. They're looking for ways to put these spirits back where they belong. And they find a couple of books written by a young author named Gerald Dupickle. That's right, Dupickle. And I was like, I just, I love the name. And so I eventually came back and wrote Gerald Dupickle's story. Oh, wow. Very cool. <laughs> he became a ghost hunter in his adventures which was my newest release, which came out um, September 7th this year. And we hit number 87 on the Amazon uh, bestseller list for one week anyway. Good in the young adult ghost stories. Well, that is awesome. That is very, very cool. Um, okay, so the question I have to ask is, do you believe in ghosts? I have been to, on. I've been invited to a lot of ghost hunts. Um, I was at a place in Illinois called the McPike Mansion, and everyone there says it's haunted. So my wife grew up in the St. Louis area, and that's what we were. We were up there one day, and we were driving by, and I said, I want to stop. I want to see it. And she goes, well, we can't stop there. They don't do tours. 
they it's just a place that's off limits and the people that own it live next to it i said we'll just pull in i want to look around a little bit i had my youngest daughter with me at the time she was like 19 or 20. so we stopped got out of the car and my wife's like no 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 don't go up there so we walked up and then this woman came out of the house next door and she's like can i help you guys i'm like well i'm here from florida i heard this place was haunted i'm a i write paranormal mystery suspense and she's like let me get the keys i'll take you in so when we <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm saying telling you, an author being an author can open so many doors <laughs> when you're like hi i write true crime and then all of a sudden the fbi profilers are like let me tell you everything about true crime right <laughs> yeah so that's awesome so we, we 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 go in she explains it there's some burial grounds in the back of the house um the place is really spooky but we were down in the basement and she said they do some tours around Halloween. You know, they gather some groups down there for seances and things like that. But we were down in the basement and I was looking around the boiler room. I'm filming with my daughter there. Um, I'm talking and, you know, this is, looks just really spooky, really scary. We saw nothing. So when I played it back and uploaded it to YouTube, if you go onto my YouTube page and look at it, you can see late into the thing there's a couple of things that come floating around and just wiggle around and then they're gone oh wow and she was telling me that the, the woman that, that runs the mcpike mansion she said they are orbs that and they actually live there they are the ghost um and she's like so you they visited you they were intrigued with what you were doing talking about and they came out to, to meet you and see you but they weren't there when we recorded i swear they were not there so to answer your question, I think I have. That makes sense. No, that makes, I mean, I mean, it's very, ghost lore is very interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day about it because, you know, some people um, I think are obviously more sensitive than other people to, you know, paranormal stuff like that. But it's very easy. Like I, I have a friend that's very, very sensitive to this stuff, but her husband is an absolute non-believer. So something can happen like something falls right off a shelf like no it doesn't make sense scoots falls off the shelf he'll be like the wind blew that it's a statue on a shelf in a room with closed windows but the fan managed to blow this off the shelf it's very funny and if you talk to him he's like the fan blew it off the shelf and i'm like yeah okay that doesn't that's not even science that doesn't even make sense that's not how gravity works but okay okay whatever you say <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's very cool. I love that you you threw the author card out and they're like, yo, come see the haunted place. Come in the basement. I just want to say how many stories probably don't end well that start with me and my daughter were down in the boiler room basement of a haunted place that has a graveyard out back. Usually that doesn't end well as a story. Like that, that's not something like if, if that was Stephen King, you absolutely would not have survived that little situation. My daughter probably would have, I would have probably been the one who got killed, you know. <laughs> the heroic sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. Got my up the stairs. Yes, Dad, you're older than me. Take him. <laughs> well, we see where your daughter's at on that. Hey, we don't, we're, go. I'm going to run. I'm going to outrun you. I have a joke always that you don't have to outrun your enemies. You just have to outrun your friends. Yeah. This is my theory that you do not have to outrun the bad guy if you have people in your group you can outrun because, you know, 
eventually take some time. Oh my goodness. Okay, we have to take a quick break and we will be right back with Drinking With Authors. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Busting out the loose leaf as if it's like like a twelve step thing to put loose leaf tea Way more in a teacup than just a bag in the hot water. You're the one that keeps buying loose leaf tea. I love loose leaf tea, just not today. Okay, whatever. Okay, moving on. So, um, I I I love <laughs> still in the basement and it doesn't end well. Um, I have a question. What do you like to read? Um, Stephen King's one of my favorite. Um, I've read a ton of his work. Um, right now, I've just started reading The Six of Crows. Um, I, I really enjoy young adult fantasy. Um, my daughter read that. She was like, Dad, you've got to read this one. Um, so I just started the series. And I mean, she bought me the, the books as a gift. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to read them. <laughs> But that's how I, I ended up reading the Twilight books, just for the record, because my friend of mine bought me the books. And I but, felt obligated. Did you watch the show? Did you watch the show that goes, because Six of Crows and Shadow and Bone and all of that is? It's on Netflix and I've refused to watch it until I've read the books. Gotcha. So I, I've already ordered and have the Shadow and Bone series, or book here, the first one. So I was kind of waiting to see what was going on with Six of Crows. I don't know if there's any particular order they should be read in, except the the books are separate, but the show just put it all together. Okay. Okay. So, well, there's that now. Spoiler alert. Jen, giving it away for everybody. Whatever. Shadow and Bone was pretty impressive, though, the TV show. I haven't read the books yet. I so. do have the book sitting over here. It's, it's on my to-do list, but it's hard always trying to find that time to... You know, balance between reading, writing, marketing, everything that we have to do as an author these days. So are you self-published then? Um, I am independently published, as I like to refer to it as, yes. Okay, well, sorry. Did not mean to offend with the self-independently published. Correct me in the future, Jen, as I'm drinking Bailey's and I say the word <laughs> self-published, obviously. I did offend. Um, so uh, what made you decide that route? Well, I, I set up numerous Googles. Or I mean, Google's. Um, <laughs> he fed out the Google's this to everybody. To everybody got the Google's. <laughs> Ooh, one beer. You're fun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but so, no, I, I sent out tons of query letters, and there was a book I read called um, The Ghostwriter, and it was written by Alessandra Torre. She's a New York Times bestselling author. And I left a review for her online because I just was fascinated with the story. I, she's mainly a romance writer and she writes, she, she's traditionally published and she does some self, you know, independent publishing as well. But she has a um, writer's conference she was doing in Dallas. So I had written 
a nice review about the book, just not the type of book I would normally read, a romance type mystery book. Um, but it, I just, I love the story. The line was great. Um, she's a phenomenal writer. And she told me, you know, why don't you come out to my conference? Um, I'm putting it on in Dallas. So, I mean, I thought at first the invite was going to be, you know, like, hey, join us for free, but not really. Um, <laughs> but I, I did, there was a, a local event here in Tampa that it was a writing contest, an essay contest, and I won a $1,000. I won first place, won $1,000 to go to that because what I wanted to do was enhance my writing career. So the $1,000 I put toward going to the conference in Dallas, and it just was a game changer for me, you know, to meet so many authors that everyone was, some of them were traditionally published, a lot of New York Times bestsellers, you know, Jennifer Probst, um, Helen Hart, just a lot of big names there in the industry. And, you know, you meet friends that you're going to have for life now, and they've all been very helpful to me. And they tell me the same thing. Throw your, your query letters out there if you don't get anything back on it tradition, you know, um, don't worry about it. Just continue to build your following on social media, continue to grow um, and go the independent route. So that's what I've been doing. Um, it's working for me. Um, I keep trying to get published. Um, there are a lot of small independent publishing houses that I would love to hook up with. Um, unfortunately, some of them, like I ran into one that they just wanted me to put up thousands and thousands of dollars up front. And you have to be beware of those. They're scams. Yeah, I was going to say no true publisher. We were as we run a small publishing company, and we can talk about that offline. Well, I wouldn't say very small. We're up to like three hundred titles now in the last two years. But um, we, you know, this was part of the reason we started what we started is because there's a lot of what they call those vanity presses. Like you're paying to get your book published, but they're also not marketing it. Like an even normal publishers, you know, there's a degree of marketing any author needs to do because we're in a time where technology is a conversation piece and you have to be willing to have the conversations. You have to be willing to interact with fans. Like you, you can't, you know, I do make the analogy all the time. You can't sit up on the mountain in a cabin and never talk to people and be that writer. You're not allowed to do that anymore. You have to talk to people. You have to be willing to go to conventions and stuff like that. But you should have an author, uh, a publishing house that actually can sort of put their money where their mouth is and, and is transparent about what it takes and wants to support the authors that they work with. And if anybody asks you for money up front, and I'm just saying this to everybody listening, it is a resounding no. I don't care what came around that money conversation, but if a publisher ever asks you for any money up front, any at all, run. That is not a publisher you want to be with, period, because it just doesn't support the whole arts thing. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And it's smart that you didn't go down that route at all. Well, I'm not saying I didn't because I did on the first book. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's smart that you learned the lesson and didn't keep repeating that. Well, it's, it's just like, I, I guess it really hit me when the book came out, there was the lack of editing that was done. I'm like, okay. You know, the first thing I had some friends of mine, the one's a college professor, and she came back and said, this thing's, this is horrible. So, you know, she helped me rewrite it. Um, and then we took it off the market. I independently published it myself. But 
what what my what grabbed my attention was a few months into the book that was put out, the first one, which was We Can't Move at Christmas. The publisher called me and the guy says on the phone, um, I've got you an interview with the New York Times. And I'm like, what? Wow. He goes, yep, they want it. They want your story. So just let me know. I'll run your credit card. Six thousand dollars you're on. You want $6,000. I have to pay them. Well, of course you do. Everybody has to pay them. Like, never. No. no. And, and the first thing he said to me was, I thought you wanted to be taken seriously. And I'm like, wow. No. I'm like, no, no. He called me back a few days later. My, my boss is willing to split it with you. So just $3,000 will do it. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. If, wow, that's that's disgusting. Yes, yeah. and I, I sent him an email then. I said, "Here's what what do I need to do to end this?" So I took it off the the market. Um, I rewrote the book, published it under Create Space at the time, and I was like, "That was that." You wow, know? that's that's fucking horrible. Sorry, words, you know, but that is absolutely terrible. I felt like I was just being ripped off the whole time at that point. I was like, no, this, this, you know, $6,000 is a lot of money. Yeah, no, you were being ripped off. Like New York yeah. Times, yes, there are things you have to do to get on New York Times or USA bestselling list. There are absolutely things you have to do to, to do that. Um, and they can cost you money, but they cost you money knowing directly to the actual, how they go about it. Like there's this whole submission to be reviewed as a New York Times bestseller that's why i'm not actually not a huge fan of that yeah it's got some marketability that you know erica lance is a new york times bestseller but i also go i shouldn't have to pay my my sales statistics should tell you by x amount that i am a, a bestseller you know it's that's a whole bizarre thing which is just stupid to me oh my goodness well, let's talk about your fans a little bit. So you obviously had fans that came up and were like, you need to write a book that I want to read. I love that. That's it's came up to your booth and were like, this is cute. So you're going to write something for me. Um, what's it been like? Because you have a younger group, not only younger people read your books, but I mean, just saying that you have a younger crowd. What's it like interacting with fans like that? Um, it's amazing. I mean, that's you spend most of your time cooped up in a room like this writing um, to get out and meet fans is probably the best feeling in the world. You know, my wife gets tired of me talking about my stories with her. I mean, and I don't blame her because I just bored to death with them over and over and over, but getting out. Uh, one of the things I learned when I went to Dallas was you got to find your niche. You got to stay in your lane, find out what's working for you and what's not. And, Someone said, maybe I should try a Comic-Con. They said, you know, your books have these catchy pictures on them. They would appeal to that crowd. And we started, we went to one Comic-Con and we've done pretty good. And from that point on, I've been just sticking with that crowd. And we've been traveling around the Southeast now. And we've been up into Atlanta. We're down all, all over Florida. Um, I'm just, it's phenomenal to get out and talk with people. And I've even, some of them have come back. Um, to different events I've been. I was at an event in Lakeland last year or two years ago and 
a guy came up to me when I did Sci-Fi Bartow, which is a small event over the streets in Bartow. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Oh, anymore. yeah. No, we were there last year. I love Sci-Fi Bartow. I think it's one of the, there's so many people that come out to Sci-Fi Bartow. Well, and I love it because it's it's a free event. So if you've never really been, if you can't really afford to go to a Comic-Con, that's one that you could go to and enjoy. Yes. It's more family friendly. Um, so we were there and this guy comes up and he says to me, uh, so you're, you're Steve, I, I found you finally. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm here. And he goes, so my niece wanted me to stop and pick up your newest book. She told me it was out, but she had some sort of engagement to go to this weekend and she couldn't be here. I'm like, okay, so here's my newest book. And he goes, she's gonna love it. And I said, uh, you want me to autograph it and personalize it to her? And he goes, yeah, sure, she, she'll love it. I said, what's her name? Uh, well, I have a nickname for her. I said, no, what's her real name? You know? He's like, I don't know. Let me call her. He didn't even know his niece's name. Oh I was, my goodness. I'm laughing. I'm like, this is crazy. But so anyway, those are the moments that just that touch me real deep in my heart. They really do. Um, those are phenomenal moments. I'd also met another guy at one event. Um, he came back and he goes, hey, I saw you here last year. I wanted to pick up your new book. Those are moments that really just it's it's hard to describe it gives you just that i'm doing this for a reason and, and they love it and that's that's what makes me happy no i think that's phenomenal because it that's you know it's we write because we love writing but i think it's that impact that we can have on somebody whether it's to make them laugh or sometimes cry or sometimes be terrified or sometimes put themselves into the character and want to be that character, you know, and want to have those adventures. I think I think that's phenomenal when you can have that effect. Um, so now that you so you went down this first path and you you saw the editing was terrible. Do you now have a whole methodology for editing and beta readers and all of that stuff? Oh, absolutely. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to go to a major writing conference. It changed everything for me. So I have. When, when I'm done writing my manuscript, I, you know, go chapter by chapter, I read it, I rewrite it, I print it, I read it again, I give it to my wife. When we're happy with it, we go to another professional editor. She does about four rounds of editing on it. Then it goes to a slew of proofreaders. Um, and it's just amazes me how these mistakes sometimes can be, they hide <laughs> and they get overlooked time and time Always. again. Um, you know, we run into that all the time. It doesn't matter how many people we have look at a manuscript. I mean, and you see that with huge names out there too. Yeah. You brought up Stephen King, but I mean, he has a whole thing on his website to report errors in books because he's like, tell me about them because they're going to happen. No matter what you do, you're going to have errors just because you could have 50 people read your book and there'd still be that one the wasn't spelled. It was spelled T-E-H just because everybody was anticipating it was there. Yep. No, it's, it's, I'm a perfectionist. My wife thinks I'm kind of crazy that way, anal that way, you know, to throw in an adult word. Hey, hey you're on an adult podcast. You can throw in all the adult words you want to. But no, I mean, I, I'm, I, I just strive for perfection. I, I think that's what's in somebody. I had done an interview with a guy in the Midwest. Um, and he told me on his podcast, he said, you know, that's what's going to make you great by striving for perfection. I just, I, don't like reading a book that's got a slew of errors in it. it just 
bothers me. I had one author, she wrote a story, she sent me her book. She says, my, this is my first book. I would love to know what you think of it. I'm like, okay, I'll let you know. It was a vampire romance story, something right after the, the Twilights were very popular. She's trying to jump in on that trend. Um, the first two pages, she used the word beautiful five times. And it was a turnoff. It's like, oh, this beautiful guy walked into the bar. He was so beautiful. He had a beautiful this, beautiful that. I'm like, okay, I'm already done. Find another word. Yes, exactly. I mean, when I get stuck for a word, I hit Google. You know, what's another word for? And because I just, and I, I see it sometimes in my own writing. I'll be like, why did I use that here? Why did I use it there? Which is why I want so many proofreaders and my final two proofreaders are both college professors. So they they both do it for me as, as friends. They teach literature and um, phenomenal group of people that I have behind me anymore. And that I think that's part of the success, finding the right team, the right people to work with. Now, no, if I can find the right publishing house to be with, I, I might really be able to make it in this business. No, totally, absolutely. So, um, I think that's great. Jen's a professor of English literature, so she can tell you, yeah, thing. But what's interesting is as a writer, I'm sure she'll love to talk about this too. As a writer, it's different than when you're on the other side of that screen. Absolutely. I mean, I get my stuff, ed I edit, you know, all the time I'm reading other people's words, but in my own, I leave really, I'll, my problem is my characters nod constantly. They're always nodding and shrugging. That was my other thing. So I, my beautiful is nod and shrug and I don't see it until someone else is like, hey, you realize that, you know, in this chapter, you, you do two of these. <laughs> so you just need somebody who doesn't live in your brain to point out those things. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's fine. You know what I meant, you know, you'll get the picture. I'm like, mm. but there are so many other books I could be reading. I don't want to have to, as a reader, take the time to know what you mean. I, I, there's somebody else standing behind you who could tell me the same story, but without errors, and I'm going to read them. So, mm -hmm. yeah, no, and that it makes a huge difference. It does mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, so let's. What do you think your like little? Um, what is your writing Achilles' heel that your editor goes? don't do this. I know a lot of us develop new ones every book that we do. We're like, no, we're on top of this nodding, shrugging thing. That's not happening anymore. But everybody absolutely is beautiful in this book. <laughs> Always. Well, I think one of my Achilles heels is showing and telling. Uh, so, um, it's something I've identified several ago. Um, I, we talk about it every time. I have a whole slew of cheat sheets here that I've made up for myself. You know, if you're trying to do this, how can I, you know, show that versus telling it? And they always tell me this, you, you can tell a story, but to show a story is what make, what's the difference between great writers and good writers. Um, so it's something I have been working on. I know I've been with the same editor now for the fourth, this is our fourth book together. She tells me over and over that, you know, what you're doing is great. She goes, you just continue to grow. Your stories get better. Um, that's always encouraging. Maybe it's, maybe she tells me that because I'm paying her. I don't know. But I mean, 
but I, I always tell her, I want your honesty. That's all I care about is honesty, you know? And she's pretty brutal sometimes, like especially the first round of drafts. So you know, we work on the story, you know, the flow of it, everything like that before we even get into looking at grammar um, and punctuation stuff. Because I'm not, I'm, I am not a literary professor or someone like that. I, I follow more of the Stephen King rule, throw it up on the paper, um, there's editors that can help you get it to where it needs to be. No, that totally a blank page is what he always said. No, you need something there to work with. Exactly. You know, I that's think what the difference between a developmental editor is and somebody who is editing for like tenses and commas and periods and grammar. You know, developmental editors can absolutely help editors. I mean, authors with their stories and stuff like that. Bailey's early in the day. It's fine. Did you see I said that as a whole sentence? I'm very proud of myself right now. <laughs> so you um, write a book for somebody. Have you stopped doing that now? Or do you still, if people reach out to you, do you still um, uh, read for them? Where, where are you at? Because I know a lot of authors don't do that anymore. Do what? Read other people's stories that they ask them to. I have, I have a large stack of books over here to read. Um, it's hard because I still have a day job. You know, you need to have something that pays the bills. And right now, our company is short-staffed. We're trying to, you know, find people, qualified people to help do the job, and it's difficult. Oh, yes. I do HR for a day job, for the record. So, oh, I know what it's like out there right now. Yeah. COVID has changed so many things about the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm close. To me, 2020 was supposed to be my breakout year. Um, we had events lined up from Savannah to Atlanta, even into Birmingham. Um, and then the world came to an end. Everything was postponed or canceled. And some of it, like even Savannah this year canceled on me. So I don't know if it's going to happen next year or not. Um, I think the, that the promoter is in trouble financially and just, I don't even know if I'm going to get my money back on that one. But those were things I paid for in 2019, 2018. But I mean, anymore, I, I'm picked up more as a guest. So that, that helps me a lot. Um, Very cool. But did, did COVID affect you as a writer, like, you know, isolated where you, do you write out in public and then you couldn't anymore? Like, how did it affect your, your habits? Well, actually, it, it helped me because our company let everybody go. For, I was We were all laid off for 13 weeks. And that helped me get my newest story done. Because I, I focused most of my day trying to be what I considered myself. Okay, this is my chance to be a professional writer. So I would get up in the morning. I would write in the mornings. I would do my household chores. So when my wife came home from work, she didn't have to do them. Um, and I would spend my afternoons, you know, marketing. So it was really a great break for me. Um, it helped me grow. Um, I really want to get back to that where I can stay at home, do this for a living. Um, that's the challenging part, you know, is when to cut the, the, the cord and when to, to go for it. Um, I love getting out on the weekends now. We've done several events this past summer. A lot of the events were jammed back to back. Um, we did Tampa Comic Con, we did Atlanta the following week. We had a week off. We were over in Orlando. Then we were down in Sarasota. 
I mean, we just bounced all over the place. So to me, um, that's the life I want to live where I'm out there on the weekends with the fans, spending my week writing. Um, but no, to answer your question, I mean, I think COVID helped me to realize where I wanted to be. Um, do you have the discipline to write every day? Yes, I do. Um, right now I'm coming home from work. I'm doing an eight, 10, 12 hour day sometimes and I'm exhausted, you know, trying to do two or three people's jobs. And, you know, then you end up going to bed early. I mean, sometimes I haven't even had time to read lately and it's, it, it upsets me. You know, it's just, it's like I've lost, it's another step back because they let people go and now we can't get people to come back. That I understand. Okay. Um, so here, here we're, as we're coming near the, the end of this particular episode, that went by really, really fast. Um, let's talk a little bit about advice you would give to authors out there who are listening. What advice would you give? Well, I actually, when I, I do a panel at a lot of Comic Cons, there's six secrets to, to writing. Okay. And authors. And I think the first thing, there's, there's a lot of authors that I have met that they think like another author is... I think my biggest thing is authors need to help authors. Okay, yes. we're here for each other. I mean, as a as an avid reader, there is no way that you could write enough books to keep me reading all year long. So I'm gonna buy another author's books. So I'm not a threat to you. You know, if I buy your book, I can buy their book and the next book from somebody else. You know, if there's so many people that read one book a week, that means 52 books. How many book, books can you write in a year? You can't. You can't write that many books in a year. You're lucky if you get two or three books done in a year. And so I, I think authors need to realize that we're, we're here to help each other, share some secrets, share what works, um, what doesn't work. I mean, and this is an industry that changes every day and we have to stay up with it. We have to grow with it. Um, you know, and I think I, I hear some authors tell me, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem when I'm sitting at a, at a Comic-Con and the next table next to me is authors. And hey, well, I appreciate you, Mr. Reader, for stopping by my table. Uh, I know you're not into paranormal mystery suspense, but hey, these fellows over here have some great stories. You should check them out as well. I agree 100%. We absolutely need to support each other as a community. Yeah, and I, th I think there's some of that that just, it doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, no. I, I was at Atlanta Comic Con, we were sitting beside a guy and he just, you know, just refuse to, I, I would refer people to him if they didn't like my books, that's fine. Not everybody's into, you know, paranormal or mystery or suspense. Some people, mm -hmm. you know, read a biography. Some people like country and westerns. Some people like, you know, um, nonfiction history. So I just, you know, or romance. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all have our own taste and the same goes with movies. And, but, you know, I, I would point them right toward it. And I, I try to talk with them but I was in one of them situations for three days in Atlanta. And I told my wife, I said, it's kind of sad, you know, that he thinks I'm his enemy and I'm not, you know, but he said, Hey, do you have any ones? Like, sure. Got plenty. You know, do you have any bags I could borrow? Sure. I got plenty. You know, <laughs> I go prepared. I'm, it's like my wife, I'm, I'm anal about certain things. So. Very cool. Okay. What are the other rules? Um, there's six rules and I don't have them off the top of my head, but because um, I have like a little cheat sheet that I go with. So maybe we can talk about some of them in the next episode, if you like. 
absolutely. We I can, can absolutely. The next episode is rapid fire questions. Can't wait to see how that goes. Oh no. <laughs> yep. Yep. Forewarning. Okay. Steve, how do people find you? What is the best way for your fans to find you? Um, social media. Um, I have a website, you know, www.stevealtier.com. Okay. But social media is probably a great place to find me. I'm on just about every platform I think that's out there. I recently touched on Twitter, or not Twitter, but um, but TikTok. Ooh. So I'm, I'm going down that path. I know a few authors that I, I met out in Dallas were telling me that you should try it, you know, see what works. And I'm not going to be one of them girls on there dancing around and trying to get some followers. So because nobody wants to see me dance, that's for sure. You know. I don't know. That could go viral. Just throwing that out there. That could be a whole viral sensation there. <laughs> hey, look at that old guy dancing there. You know, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. So what is your social media handles? Um, I'm author Steve Altier on Facebook, author Steve Altier on, and I, it's another thing I learned, you're an author. So promote that you're an author. It's not Steve Altier books. It's not Steve Altier, the writer. I'm an author, Steve Al author, Steve Al here. I try to use all of my platforms uh, to make it simple um, for everyone to find me. Um, that's that's my biggest thing. You know, stick with that. But I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, um, Pinterest, all of those that I can think of. Very cool. Awesome. Well, it has been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm this has been drinking with all